Welcome back to the Daughters Without Moms podcast. The podcast is six months old. I am just thrilled with the stories that have been shared and the topics we've discussed. So far, the podcast has been heard in 11 countries. If you are enjoying the podcast, I'd really appreciate your help in doing one or two of the following things. Write a review on Apple Podcasts. This helps the podcast gain recognition based on the algorithms. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen and share it with others. Today's episode is a discussion on caregiver identity loss. It happens when the treatments end or hospice is brought in and all the appointments, doctors, and tests come to an end. Along with my good friends, Katie and Rebecca, we each share about our own experience with this. We also talk about how being a full-time caregiver affects your other roles in life as you take on this new responsibility. If you have another topic that you'd enjoy hearing on the podcast, please let me know. You can find my email and other details in the show notes. Thanks again for your continued support of the Daughters Without Moms podcast. Today is not the story of a daughter without a mom, but today is a conversation with two women who are friends of mine. Um, Rebecca, I've met online through the grief community, um, and she was one of the women that I did the Mother's Day circle with, and her story is available on the podcast. You can go and look for Rebecca's story and hear her story. And Katie and I have been friends, I just realized, for about 20 years um, since she was 16 in high school um, from a mutual church that we attended. My husband and I helped out with the high school group, and Katie and I have been friends ever since. Running buddies, friends, and um, sharing the journey of mothering together. So this is happening because Katie listened to Rebecca's podcast and had a connection with something that she shared. Um, So today we're going to talk about something I'll call caregiver identity crisis, kind of that loss that you feel when either treatment is over or treatment has ended, or in my case, like my sister went on hospice, there's this loss of identity that can happen after you've been through a significant treatment journey. And uh, that's what we're going to talk about today, because I don't think that that gets talked about too much. And that's what Katie resonated with when she listened to Rebecca's podcast. And so I reached out to both of them and they said yes to being here today. So Thank you both for your your time today. I appreciate your willingness to share. Um, So I think we're going to begin with Katie sharing a little bit about um, the journey that she's been through with her daughter um, and the treatment journey. And then we will um, talk to Rebecca a little bit about what she's doing and then just continue on with the conversation. So Katie, I'm going to turn it over to you. Okay. Thanks, Beth. Excited to be on here today. Um, so a little bit about me. I have four daughters. Our oldest is nine. Uh, we have twins that are seven and our youngest is soon going to be five. Uh, and our youngest Cassidy, uh, was diagnosed in February of 2020 with high risk neuroblastoma. She was about three and a half at the time. Um, and so that diagnosis comes with quite an extensive treatment plan. Uh, she went through five rounds of chemotherapy. Four of those were inpatient. Uh, she did a short radioactive treatment. She had tumor resection surgery, uh, two rounds of high dose chemotherapy followed by stem cell transplant, 12 days of radiation, uh, and finally ended with five cycles of inpatient immunotherapy. Um, That was over about 15 months. 
during that time, she had about 17 hospitalizations and just counted up last night that we were in the hospital, I believe 114 nights um, through that time. Along with that, as I said, she was diagnosed in February. So our first stay in the hospital, um, my our parents were able to visit a little bit, but then, then by the time we were in the hospital again, COVID had hit. And so uh, only two healthy parents were allowed to ever be in the hospital, which meant myself and my husband were the only ones there. Um, he is a farmer, so works quite a bit. And as I mentioned, we have three other daughters at home. So because of that, he was not there uh, for the majority of the time. I was the primary caretaker for her. Um, Obviously, along with all the nights in the hospital came a lot of other things, the meds, uh, she did get a feeding tube halfway through treatment, so doing tube feeds, uh, lots and lots and lots of appointments, um, and scheduling those things, um, and so, like I said, the majority of that was on me. Um, we just finished up her official end of treatment date was May 14th, so about a month ago, um, and sometime around the end of treatment was when I listened to Rebecca's podcast episode uh, and really resonated with me as I listened to her talking about um, her mother passing and losing that role as a caretaker. Uh, and just something that has been on my mind a lot, a lot of emotions that I've been processing uh, as far as, um, you know, the shift in my role. Obviously, it's a little bit different. It wasn't a drastic end for me. We still have follow-ups, uh, we have some long-term side effects we'll be dealing with. Um, and so it's not an abrupt ending, you know, like I know Beth and Rebecca experienced, uh, but like I said, more of a shift for me uh, as spending a lot, a lot of time in the last year being a caretaker uh, and um, that, that that's changing now. And Katie, I remember in one of your posts, you used a word that I can't think of right now about that, like, you're, ex you're excited because it's the end of treatment and something you've looked forward to for so long. But at the same time, maybe it was you were saying like there's the loss of, like you were excited for it to be the last time you were going to be seeing all these people at CHOP and stuff mm -hmm. because you were happy that treatment ended. But at the same time, you formed bonds and stuff with them. And, you know, you were already recognizing that there was going to be this weird imbalance of emotions as you, you know, came to the end of your treatment plan. Right. Yeah, that that last week we were in the hospital was just really strange. Uh, and I think I was aware of that the whole time and um, tried to get a little bit of closure by saying goodbye and saying thank you to a lot of those nurses. But we spent a lot of time there, as I said, um, and it was hard to say goodbye there. Those, those nurses are really special people, as I know that you both know, I'm sure, with your own experiences. Um, mm -hmm. And so you, you kind of say goodbye. And I thought a lot about what that's like for them on the other end of that that you kind of say goodbye and, and I kind of jokingly, but also seriously said, I hope I never see you again. Um, you know, that was, a, that was the part always a possibility too, you know, and I think I always think of the, those nurses as they say goodbye to patients that are going off treatment, um, that they hope to never see them again, you know? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So then Rebecca, I, uh, if you wouldn't mind sharing as if people haven't listened to your podcast that Katie and I have both listened to, um, kind of, you know, your part, portion of what Katie's talking about and how you've actually turned that into um, part of your life's calling based on your own experience of being the caregiver for your mom. So if you could share a little bit about that, I think that'd be helpful. Yes. So I am a registered nurse and uh, my caregiver journey 
with my mom started in 2015 when she got the um, sudden and unexpected diagnosis of acute myeloid leukemia. And uh, I didn't really know much about leukemia at the time, but um, if you don't know anything about it, especially acute types of leukemia, um, you get the diagnosis and then it's like, okay, we gotta go. <laughs> Here's treatment starting like tomorrow. Um, so she was in, in and out of the hospital for, um, the first time was a month long of inpatient chemo. And then it was a week long of, um, once a month for about five months and she went into remission and then her leukemia came back. And so they decided to transfer us to Seattle, which is about an hour away from where we live. And so we had, I think, I'm trying to think back, probably several months, maybe five, six, seven months of traveling back and forth for different types of treatment. And they decided to do a bone marrow stem cell transplant. And for that, you have to have a 24 seven caregiver that will be with you. And you have to live within 20 minutes of the hospital there, which if you've ever been in a big city, that's, you know, you have to live in the city. <laughs> you can't live far away. So even though we lived an hour away, we had to move to Seattle. And um, I did that with my mom. They told us that it would be at least a hundred day journey for the whole process. And due to complications and things, we ended up being there for 10 months. So my husband and my two boys lived back at home and they would occasionally come see us on the weekends for, you know, dinner or something. Um, but me and my mom lived in Seattle for the whole school year. And my kids at that point, one of them turned 16 the day after we moved there and the other would have been 12 and turned 13 while we were there. Um, so I learned through that experience um, a lot on the patient side of things and the caregiver side of things, because as I said, I'm a registered nurse. Um, but up until that point, no one in my family had really ever been acutely sick or um, had a chronic condition and been in the hospital a lot. So I knew things from the nurse perspective and always tried to empathize with patients. But then going through that with my mom was like, oh, <laughs> you know, we get report and we see these people, how they are in the hospital, but we don't know how they were before the hospital. Um, and thinking about Katie's journey with COVID, man, that changes things completely. And um, it's difficult to imagine what that would have been like with my mom through that, if, you know, her journey and our journey through her sickness had happened uh, now. But our entire journey lasted um, two years and with her in and out of treatment and then the last part of it being her stem cell transplant. Um, she also had a feeding tube and um, we learned to navigate that. And then um, towards the end of our journey when we were kind of, you know, like, all right, her cells are taking place and holding and she's doing okay. They were trying to figure out our navigation back home and she got sick and got hospitalized. And that meant that I had to go home because I, we lived in a apartment complex 
associated with the cancer center that was all for um, people getting stem cell transplants. And so if you were sick, you weren't allowed to be there because everyone had no immune system and was um, at great risk to get sick. So I moved home and she was in the hospital. And then there was probably a month or two of trying to figure out her placement. And then she came back to a nursing home. And then very shortly after um, she passed away. So there was no real transition. It was like the band-aid got ripped off and I was back at home. So um, I kind of had some of the same feelings like, yay, I'm home and this is good, but like, uh, <laughs> what do I do? And I thought my journey back home to my husband and kids would just be, you know, like I opened the door and I was like, Hey, I'm home but they had established their routines and their thing. And, um, I was definitely not ready to just jump back in and be like, Hey, I'm mom. I was grieving even before my mom passed away, just like the fact that I had been gone for so long and struggling with, um, trying to maintain keeping contact and records of her and everything while she was alive. And it was, yeah, it was interesting, something I was not expecting as a part of that. So when, when Katie reached out to me after she had listened to Rebecca's podcast and was like, wow, it just, thank goodness that I know the way I'm feeling is normal because I heard you both talk about it. And um, so the, the, I, the loss that I had was with um, when my sister moved to this area in 2019, in like March of 2019, she was in the midst of... Um, cancer treatment, you know, so I would luckily was 40 minutes away from where she was having appointments and had a pretty flexible job schedule. So I was able to meet her a lot and go to things with her, which I always just felt like that that was just um, as weird as it was, it was like sacred time together to be able to be with her during treatments and, and um, hospitalizations and things like that. And then in the fall, they discovered that her cancer had metastasized to her brain. So in the fall, things got real serious. She had two brain surgeries in one week, then was in intensive care for like three weeks, and then was in a rehab facility. And it was just a lot, a lot, a lot of um, hospitalization and treatment plans and things that were happening. And it was also in her lungs and they were no longer able to continue to withdraw fluid from her lungs to help her to be able to breathe. Um, and so then she was uh, sent home on hospice. And that was, you know, that was when I experienced it, the first part of that little loss that you're like, wow, like, even though I was only her support person part of the time, because her husband would go with her and her kids would go with her. Um, all of a sudden there's just like this fierce drop in, you know, the scheduling and the appointments and all of these, you know, um, responsibilities that you feel like you have, it's like all gone at once. Um, and I know for her, she always, she battled cancer for almost 10 years. Her thing was like, as long as I always have a treatment plan, like, I feel like I'm doing something to fight this cancer. Um, so she, through everything she went with chemos, cyber knife, radiations, brain surgeries, you know, everything that she went through, she always was like willing, willing to do whatever it was going to take for her to continue in this journey. And so even when they sent her home on hospice, 
there, it was mostly focused on her lungs and stuff. And um, like a week later, I went with her and her husband. She wanted to go talk to the oncologist again and say, what do I have to do to be able to start treatment again? Like she, she still was just not ready. And the oncologist was like, you know, I, there's nothing else that we can do. Um, and so I could see in her also like that loss, you know, the loss of, oh, well, like even when they, she was told she was going home on, home on hospice, she wasn't, she wasn't ready to accept that either. So there is, there is something about how this, and I think it's when it's a long-term treatment plan too, like Katie, you were in it for 15 months. My gosh, Rebecca, you were in it for two years. You know, that last um, pretty intense portion with Amy was about, you know, uh, maybe four to six months um, after the, the fall and then she passed in January. So I think there is just something to this when it's an intensive long-term treatment plan that once it's over, there's this identity loss. There's this, you were taking action. You were the caregiver. You were, um, you know, you had purpose because you had appointments and you had things to be and places, you know, places to be and things to do. And um, so I, I just really am so grateful that um, you guys are willing to talk about this because I think that it is a real thing that we need to be able to recognize and let other people hear so that they also go, okay, this is not, you know, just some having some strange emotion because I've, you know, the treatment has ended, um, that it's just a normal, I think, response to that identity loss. There's no other way. I can't, I can't come up with any other way to say it. So um, Katie, if you wouldn't mind, I would just like for you to share a little bit about how that experience was for you after Cassidy's, you know, treatment plan. Like you said, you're not done, but that intense part of her 15 month treatment plan, how that affected yeah. you. Um, you know, honestly, maybe I'll have to let you know in a few weeks. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I mentioned she finished treatment May 14th, uh, but we've had a few, she had two more appointments this week. She has two more appointments next week. Next Thursday, I believe if all goes as planned after that, it's possible that she won't have appointments for two months, which is just kind of unbelievable because we, over those 15 months, I think only one time did we go more than a month without being in the hospital. Um, so to think that she could go that long without having appointments is um, kind of daunting. And I, I think it's exciting, obviously. <laughs> it's a huge relief. But my husband and I were talking last night that it's, it's a little bit scary um, and it just feels really strange, um, you know, after back to back to back things for so long. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But so that week when you, you know, sent me the text after you listened to Rebecca's uh, podcast, what kind of, what were the, what were the things that you were feeling then um, that made you, you know, reach out to me to say, whew, glad to know that I'm, you know, not going crazy, that this is normal. Yeah. I think my husband and I both were, we talked about this again last night. Um, and I think we both just, I just kept saying, I just feel weird about things or strange. Those were the best two words I can think of. Um, because we both were excited to be done treatment. And, and there's been a lot of exciting things happening. Uh, you know, just even the last few weeks, a lot of big milestones, just this week, Cassidy had her port removed, which is a huge deal. Um, and so all these great things happening. And I think, you know, we feel excited about that, but we also feel other feelings that don't feel as good. And so it's, um, it's, we have a, a tremendous 
community of people that have been supporting us through this whole thing. And everybody's really excited um, that Cassidy's doing so well, and we are too. Um, but there's this, uh, you know, I, I know Beth, you've talked about this in various episodes, um, something that I learned from Daniel Tiger, if anybody has small children, uh, about sometimes you can feel two feelings at the same time. Uh, and so that's something that I've learned a lot this year that, that we can feel excited and we can feel other emotions that seem to be hard to name. <laughs> um, and so I mentioned this a little bit before, but something that's different um, with our story from both of your stories, and I don't think it's better or worse, just different, is that you know when, when both of you were feeling that loss of the role of a caregiver, you also were grieving the loss of a loved one. Um, so it was kind of like multiple negative emotions, maybe we'll say. Um, and for us, we're trying to balance these the really great things that are happening. Um, and then on the other hand, also still feeling the sense of loss as a caregiver um, and feeling like, you know, as you were saying, Beth, that, that it's like we're this whole time we've been doing something. Uh, I think we realized early on that this whole thing was well beyond our control. Uh, I never really felt like if, if we got her to the right doctor, did the right treatment, that, that like we could make this better. Uh, we kind of just were along for the ride. But at the same time, being able to schedule all the appointments and being able to stay on top of all the medications and all of that stuff was like something for me to do, like something practical. Um, and not that I thought that that was going to fix it all, but that it was just something to do. And so now we're, we're getting to a period here where there, there won't be as much to do, um, which is just strange. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Katie. Rebecca, how about you? How can you share some of your experience with that, um, with the loss that you felt after your caregiver role was finished? Yeah, so mine did come with grief. Um, and uh, I don't know the word to put on it. Um, probably guilt, actually, uh, because there was no time to really talk about how we were going to go into this journey. It was just kind of like, okay, I'm the only daughter that lives in Washington. I'm a nurse. My mom needs this person. Like, of course it would be me. And then I went and then it took longer than we expected. And my family sacrificed a lot. Um, you know, I quit working because I had to be with my mom. So my husband, you know, managed our income and budgeted out everything and we made it, but a lot of sacrifice. My kids had, you know, changes to their daily schedules and um, things that we would normally spend money on that we weren't anymore. So I came back and I just realized like, whoa, I was so busy over there but you guys were sacrificing here. And I came up with the realization that if my husband had, if the roles were reversed and he said, Hey, I'm going to go, you know, just going to be a hundred days with my parents or whatever, I would be like, no, like we can't survive without you. Um, and so that was just like, Oh, like, <laughs> I don't like this feeling. I feel really bad for doing that. And, um, yet like, how could I, not. Uh, and then for being gone away from my kids, you know, was hard and um, they were young and I missed out on that time, but um, we're doing good now. And I think 
just listening to Katie speak, when you get a diagnosis and it's like, here we go for treatment, there is this like adrenaline kind of thing that comes along with you. You know, you have to manage all of this stuff. It's not like you could just be like, oh, you know, nope, we're not going to do that treatment or I'm just going to haphazardly manage her medications. It'll be fine. You get this, you know, I, I guess it is adrenaline. It's purpose. It's, you know, this whole thing we talk about battling cancer, like a battle and a fight, but whatever that is, you know, you get that surge of energy that you just have to have. And then when it ends, like, I think you feel all the fatigue that you probably should have felt along the way, but you couldn't because you couldn't just be like, we're going to sleep in and miss the appointment today. Um, So I know I felt a lot of that as well, like, whoa. And I went to the doctor, I was having some issues with my health, just with iron deficiency. Um, So nothing crazy, but I was at the top of my game, you know, like a month before. And then I was like, I can't get out of bed. And I don't think this is grief or depression. I think like, it just feels like something is missing from me. Well, it was, it was iron. I had none. (laughs) So that was a a boost once I got that figured out. But, um, yeah, that just that transition. And, uh, I think about my own life being raised in a big family. I am used to chaos. And as I grew up and moved away from home, I would find myself constantly going into chaotic things and making my life overwhelmingly busy because I was just used to that, that then when you have, the ability to like sit and feel the feelings. It doesn't feel as comfortable because you're used to that. Go, go, go. Um, so I can imagine Katie that you are, you know, on one hand you are like, yay, this is the greatest news, but yeah, but how, but what do we do? What do we fill our days with? Because we're so used to this thing and finding that new normal that it is a total change and, a um, something to adapt to. Although Katie did mention to me something about um, that, yes, that with the end of treatment meant that she was going to then go back to being the full-time mom of all four girls and not just one, right, Katie? You yeah, said something I, like that? I just jotted that down, <laughs> that that was a, a shift, too, for me to be back home. Uh, you know, I spent a lot of time away from the other three this year and spent a lot of time, like, preparing for each hospital stay and getting things ready for them and making a schedule and getting that all figured out. Uh, because another piece of our story was that since, as I mentioned, my husband's a farmer and works, goes to work at four o'clock in the morning, um, almost more than a hundred of those nights, the girls stayed with their grandparents uh, and slept there. And so you know, every time we had to pack and do all these things, but once we were at the hospital and they were at the grandparents, we would occasionally FaceTime, but my focus obviously was on Cassidy. And so I spent a lot of the last year parenting one child and then, got back home and, and was like, Oh, I have four. <laughs> this is, this is different. Um, and yeah, Rebecca, what you just were saying about, um, the adrenaline and that kind of feeling blah after treatment, I, that first week that the first few days when we were home after our last hospital stay, I was emotional in a way that I thought that I would have been the first week that she was diagnosed. But I think in the beginning, uh, it was similar to your mom's story where you, you know, we got the diagnosis. She 
went to the pediatrician on a Wednesday, went to CHOP on a Thursday, and by the following Wednesday, she was getting chemo. Um, so it was fast and furious uh, and like lots of tests and anesthesia and a lot of things the first week. And so, you know, obviously that diagnosis really hits you, but I think you don't really have time to, to sit and think about it. And so and then you just keep going. And so I think, I think you're right that that's part of getting to the end and then kind of realizing what's been going on for all these many months that you, that you just didn't really have time to think about it much. Yeah, there's so much, so much more additional parts of the journey that come to fruition uh, with the end of treatment. Um, I did look back, Katie, to you when you texted me that day that you, what you really connected with was that in Rebecca's podcast, she said something like, it's not weird if you miss the routine and structure of treatment. Um, and in the, I guess it was in the spring, maybe I had the opportunity to drive Katie and Cassidy down to one of uh, Cassidy's appointments because she was having it at the Perlman Center, which is where I spent a ton of time with my sister. And I was like, you know, some people don't like to drive in the city that, you know, all that kind of stuff. I'm like, I could drive there with my eyes closed. I know where to park. I know how to do this. I know how to do that. And so um, was blessed to be able to drive them down one day. And we got there and I was like, is this weird that I'm like feeling this sense of comfort of being back in this place for the first time since not, you know, since being here with Amy. And it was just so strange that being in this, you know, cancer center was providing me like this little warm feeling of comfort um, just because it had been so familiar for so many months. Um, yeah, yeah. So there's so many emotions and feelings and things that come along with the treatment and the end of treatment um, plan. Uh, so one of the things too, like that I appreciated, Katie and I like, you were saying, Rebecca, that you had to be within 20 minutes of the facility. We're about 40 minutes from Philadelphia. So we were able to still, you know, mostly live at home and um, drive to the, the, the hospital for hospitalizations and things like that. So one of the things I really appreciated about where my sister was getting her treatment was that they were very focused on the caregiver. Like there was a caregiver shower. There was a family lounge area where you could go sit in massage chairs and they would have like food and coffee and things like that. Um, and they did do a good job of also, you know, I think a lot of times, like you said, Rebecca, we don't think about the caregiver. We're focused on the patient. Um, and that's mostly, you know, what the focus is, but this place where, um, Amy was had great, um, attention to the family and the caregivers as well, which I was really appreciative of. Katie, I know you had mentioned several times, um, when you were down about being happy about the Wawa cart that would come around with coffee. People who aren't from this area, Wawa is like a convenience store in our area that has great coffee and they would come around sometimes, she said, with a with a coffee cart. It's those little things that help you as a caregiver, you know, feel seen and heard too. Um, so Rebecca, can you tell us a little bit, you know, now with your Live Well RN hat on, you know, um, what we can do to support each other in this caregiver role, you know, what you're doing, just any you know, how you took this and turned this into something that you and your partner are doing. Yes. So we started a business because we realized that there is a huge gap between the hospital and doctor's appointments and then life at home. 
And um, thankfully with my mom, I am a nurse. So I spoke the language and the lingo. I understood, you know, the things to look out for and um, all of that kind of insider stuff. But I realized that there's so many people that don't know and medical appointments are so quick. And, um, you know, Katie, thinking about your story, um, one thing you should maybe do for yourself is you can see we're on Zoom, my diploma back here. You should make yourself an honorary diploma because you have learned so much about the medical world and um, things like, I don't know if you ever even knew what a port was before. And now you're like, oh yeah, that's her port. And this is how we care for it. And this is what we do. And um, you just learned so much along the journey. So we wanted to help support people when there is kind of that gap of information and they aren't really sure what to do. So on our website, we have lots of free resources, um, different things that we think will help anywhere from like tracking your blood pressure or, you know, staying organized with your medications. And then we're offering um, ask a nurse services now that um, you can kind of connect with us one-on-one -on -one and um, we can help guide you preparing for your appointment or organizing your medications and things like that. Um, so yeah, that just came out of a passion of seeing this gap and going, how do other people do it that don't have this information and how can we help? And knowing that there was a definite need, so. And do you also provide some sort of journal um like a PDF of a journal kind of thing on your website? Did I see we that? We have right now um, a couple of things that are like the top five tips to get the best care at your doctor's office. And, um, you know, sometimes you don't know how to keep track of things. Sometimes you don't even know what questions to ask. So we have some prompts there and, you know, like how to keep track of your lab results or your medical records. Um, Cause it can just, all be so overwhelming. And I think a lot of patients are just like, oh, well, that's all in my chart, but they don't realize that the medical system runs at warp speed and there's no like, well, this patient is coming in. I'm going to debrief and read her whole chart, you know, before she arrives. A lot of it is just like, hey, how you doing? Yeah. <laughs> so, and Katie, I would suggest for you, if you haven't done this already, um, to make like a little medical journal for Cassidy because as you go on to see new providers and the time goes out farther and farther, it's not going to be so fresh in your head. So you can be like, yeah, this is when her first treatment was. And this is when she had this surgery and that surgery and just have it down. So you're like, here's our <laughs> handy dandy, like resume of all of our healthcare stuff that we've been through. And that will probably be beneficial to you in the future. Actually, I have it right here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a journaler um, as far as, you know, writing out thoughts and all that kind of things. But one thing I have fairly consistently done is I have like a list here, but just at all the days that anything happened to look back on. Um, but I've joked, but seriously, that I dread the day when I have to fill out a form for Cassidy that's not for CHOP because I filled out, you know, the school forms and the sports forms for all the other kids and checked no to every box. Um, and now she just went under anesthesia for the 30th time. She's had several surgeries, you know, and so I, um, you know, need to make a plan to get that all in one spot so that I can just maybe staple it on and say, see attached. 
<laughs> That's a great idea. You're right. I didn't even think about that kind of stuff. Um, but Rebecca, what I when you were saying about um, the writing the things down and about that the medical profession work works at warp speed, um, that was the one thing that I would just if, if piece of advice to people listening to this is, is it, for me, there was a mindset change that I always thought that, that it was their responsibility to know my history and to know all the things. And through my journey with my sister, I realized now you have to be your own best self-advocate. That's the one thing I learned through all this is that they do have all the information there, but like, you know, Amy, after a 10 year journey, how many red flags can you have? She had, you know, probably 45 red flags that would needed to be paid attention to at all times. And I remember one day they were, what is it called when you extract fluid from the lungs? It's got a name, doesn't it? But she was having one of those done and they literally were in the room getting ready to start it. And she was like, oh, wait, I took my blood thinner last night. We can't do this. I'm supposed to not take the blood thinner the night before. And it was just like, Everybody in the room kind of looked at each other and said, oh, yeah, nobody, nobody asked her about that, you know. Um, so and I'm not trying to place blame on anybody here. I'm just I'm agreeing with what you're saying about the warp speed um, nature of the business is that you have to be your own best self-advocate. And that, you know, is only feasible if you're healthy yourself. So if not, again, the caregiver role is just so important, so important. Right. So a thoracentesis. Yes. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I um, want to pull that out of my hat. <laughs> and all of the things that maybe aren't so critical, like a blood thinner, but you know, like um, I've taken care of patients where their port is just kind of finicky and they know, or you as the caregiver know, it works really best if you kind of position it this way, or it seems like that, or, you know, my mom used to, um, she had a central line. She didn't have a port, but a Hickman line. And when they would flush the saline, a lot of times it would make her nauseous because you can kind of smell it and some people can even taste it. So one of the nurses told her early on that if you put a, like a candy or something flavored in your mouth, or if you held something that was really scented, that that would help. So she, I think, I don't know if it really helped her, or if it was just like a habit and something that she thought I have to do, but she would carry these really scented potent tea bags, like to make tea. And she'd be like, wait, I need my tea. And then she'd like sniff it as they were doing it. And it just helped. So things like that, that you can, um, especially if you're caring for a child, but also an adult, you can say, you know, this makes them more comfortable. You know, maybe they need the stuffed animal before they get their port accessed or whatever it is, but just to keep that routine. Um, and something I wanted to say about the transition too, which I said in my podcast episode where I shared my story, but Katie, you now also get the um, responsibility, the pleasure, the added journey of remembering who you are and taking care of yourself because this whole journey has all been Cassidy, right? And so the focus is on her and it doesn't matter if you sleep or if you eat or whatever. And now you're back home filling that void with the other girls that you hadn't taken care of as you would have liked to this whole time. Um, so now it's important to remember to fill your cup. And that is something that I started going to counseling for. And the counselor said, you know, what are you doing to fill your cup? Because I had a lot of 
resentment that I was gone for so long. Um, and probably some feeling of like failure because my mom died at the end of it. Like if I could have just been better or whatever, we would have, she would still be here. Um, but the counselor said, what are you doing to fill your cup? And I was like, what is this cup you're talking about? And then things that we think of as self-care are things like, oh, get a massage or get a pedicure or something. Well, when you have like that yearning in your soul to be filled back up or you're confused as to what your role is or what's going on, a pedicure really doesn't, you know, make you just feel all better. So um, just finding that. And then to people listening to this that aren't in the journey, um, I've been reading a lot about um, a couple of different books that people have been on similar journeys and kind of talked about, um, you know, the sick life or the in-treatment life and then afterwards. And I think a lot of times you get attention and support maybe during the treatment, but then afterwards it's like, oh, well, she's better. Like you're home, everything's good. Um, or people that maybe have gone through a similar journey, it's it hurts to go back there in your head and think, wow, I wonder what she's going through and how can I help? So maybe we aren't very good about that. But if you're listening to this and you are someone that knows someone that has been on a journey, um, I would encourage you just to reach out and send them a card, a note of encouragement, ask them to go for a walk or get coffee or whatever, and just um, allow them to share. Cause we don't always have to know the right thing to say, but it does feel better when you say the wrong thing in an effort to say the right thing versus when you say nothing, cause that can be really lonely. That was so good. I hadn't thought about how, like you said, the attention you get when you're in treatment and then when you come out of it, everybody's like, oh, well, everything must be good because she's not in treatment. And perhaps all the, you know, thoughts and calls and meals and stuff stop. So, so do you guys have anything left to, that you wanted to share before we wrap this up? Um, I'm just meeting Katie through Zoom for the first time and hearing her story, but um, I just want to give you a big hug <laughs> and to anyone going through a journey like you are going through and um, just saying good job, mama. <laughs> and um, yeah. Do something for you. Do something nice and be That's proud right. of all the, you know, like we just made it through a normal day. <laughs> Woo mm -hmm. Yeah, it's funny. I just uh, saw a new counselor for the first time last week and she asked me the exact same question. <laughs> what are you doing of, to fill up your cup? Um, you know, and yeah, all of what you said about trying to figure out where, where is my identity and what is my identity now as a lot of things are changing. Um, and I guess I just would say that to anybody that's on a similar journey or, you know, going through something as difficult as this, I think something I've learned is that there is no right or wrong way to feel, as you've said, with grief, that it's, I feel like different times I've had feelings about certain things and thought, is this really weird? Uh, kind of like you were saying, Beth, with going back to that place. I remember uh, we were doing radiation and we had to like, make, we're an hour away from trap and had to make the trip 12 times in in a few weeks time. And so it was asking for rides. And I remember texting Beth and saying, would you mind driving us? If you don't want to go back there, I totally understand, you know, thinking like, maybe it will be really sad for you to go back there. 
Um, and then you found it comforting. So I think that's fine. <laughs> I think, however, if you have a sick uh, child or parent or sister, um, it's hard and however you feel about it is okay. And I think we just kind of waste a lot of extra energy thinking that we should feel a certain way or trying to feel a certain way, you know, and as you've said with grief that everybody, uh, something else I've picked up from your podcast is that people experience grief differently, even to people who have lost the same person, you know? Uh, and so I think it's the same thing for parents of a child with cancer that, uh, you know, each of our experiences is different, but I think it's so important to be willing to share, uh, because as I mentioned that it's, it's been comforting to me when I have feelings that I think are strange to hear that somebody else is feeling the same way, that it's not, you know, on, that on top of all of these feelings, I'm not also crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so true so true well I so appreciate both of you being here today and what both of you have shared and brought to the table um and I think you know like just like when Katie listened to Rebecca's episode which by the way is episode number 17 if you want to go back and listen to Rebecca's story of her journey with her mom um just you know these conversations I guarantee that there will be one person that listens to this and resonates because the three of us are from all three different journeys and resonated with each other so thank you so much for being here with me today and for sharing your stories and um, I just really appreciate you both If you'd like more information on my thoughts about the grief journey, please visit my website, yourgriefjourney.com. If you'd be interested in being interviewed for a podcast, please send me an email to daughterswithoutmoms at gmail.com.